and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 986. So you can be following along what we're uh, working through. We're in week two of a series that we've entitled Ready, a study out of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. These are books that were written in the first century by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in modern-day Greece, a city called Thessalonica, thus the term Thessalonians. And so uh, this book is written, these letters are written as a way to help this fledgling and young church know what it means to live a upright and godly life amidst all the trials and tribulations and troubles that the world may face. And, and, and our goal in this series is to go through verse by verse of this letter, walking through and finding out what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us, how we can apply the lessons of that Thessalonian church was learning to our own lives here in the year 2016 in the Fox Valley area here at a church like Village. And what we learn right away as we open this text is, again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to find a church that is an example, uh, one that should be followed. In fact, Paul's going to say, you have become an example to so many people. And we want to learn from their example. We want to imitate what they were doing. They weren't doing it all perfectly, but we want to learn what were the things that were making them a, a really a, a place of life change in the community and the world that they lived in. But as I come to that question, I, I come to realize what made them great and what might have kept them from being great. Well, Paul writes about two things that though they were doing great things at the time, could hinder or handicap their ability uh, to continue to move forward. The first one is, is uh, struggles. We're going to learn that there was all kinds of affliction, all kinds of trials and tribulations that were going on in their life. And, and struggles can, can thwart a church's ability to do what God has called it to. And no doubt, as we serve as a church, there are going to be struggles, whether struggles of people in our church or, or struggles with the issues of unity or, or struggles from a financial set, standpoint or struggles as a result of the world we're trying to reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are struggles that can impact a church from doing all that it's supposed to. But also, another one that we're going to learn is not one that we so easily see and are quick to rectify. We're going to learn that this church has a lot of success going for it. You see, it's easy when we see the struggles to try to fix those things. But how about when a church is successful? How about when a church has everything going right for it? The Thessalonians had a lot of success, and they could have sat and just enjoyed and relished the fact that they were in a successful church, hearing of their fame and renown, not only in their own community, but their name, as we're going to learn in these letters, was being made known all over the world. And for many of us, and including this church here, uh, the struggles are always going on. That's a way of life, right? We know that in this world we're going to have struggles. But as a church that has grown and had some really awesome years uh, behind it, Village Bible Church is a church that can just rest in the successes of yesteryear, right? We can just sit back and say, look at all these great things we've done. Even as we embark on a new year, we can look back to 2015 and say, what a great year. What great ministry took place. What, a, what an awesome time to be a part of Village Bible Church. But what we're going to learn is, is that Paul says that a church that lives in yesterday's success is doing nothing for the kingdom of God in the present. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at these first 10 verses this morning and ask the question, how do we become a church that changes lives? What a great question to ask. 
in the second year or second um, week of a new year and to really ask that the Lord would teach us and we would apply these things to our own lives so that we can make 2016 so much greater as a church than even 2015 was for the glory of God. So I'm going to ask that you stand uh, as we give reverence to the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading from uh, verse 1 all the way to verse 10. I'll ask God's blessing and then we'll spend some time in the word. Here's what 1 Thessalonians 1 says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and the Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, now you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for your blessing on the reading of your word. I pray for uh, a blessing for the teaching of it, for the hearing and applying of it. Lord, I pray that we would be changed and transformed and that as we as individuals are transformed by your word, we would be a church that would be transformed and ready to serve you, ready to make an impact, ready to um, be the church that you've called us to be so that you may be honored and glorified in all of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Just as a way of reminder, if uh, you want to grab the sermon insert uh, to follow along, you can do that. It's in your bulletin as well. Well, uh, this last week was a pretty important week for the community of Hinckley where I live. Many of you may have heard, and if you haven't, that's okay, but uh, Hinckley was abuzz this week because uh, Hinckley is the hometown of the Harlem Globetrotters. If you uh, follow the Harlem Globetrotters on their Twitter account, it said, we're heading home, we're heading to Hinckley. And for some of you who are sitting there going, Harlem, Hinckley, you can't be any farther in the spectrum than those two places. But in 1927, in January of 1927, the Harlem Globetrotters played their first basketball game in a little high school gymnasium out in rural Hinckley, Illinois. And in my lifetime, I know of three occasions that the Globetrotters have come back to commemorate uh, their anniversary, 19, 1987, uh, 2001, and then uh, this year, 2016. And I'll tell you, it was the hottest ticket in town. Everybody wanted to know who had tickets and if they were available for anyone else. And when you got to the high school gym, which seats, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I've heard anywhere from uh, uh, 1,100 to 1,300 people. Think about that. The Globetrotters are playing the Chicagoland area in two other arenas, Allstate Arena and the United Center, and Hinkley Big Rock High School. 
And they're now close, and I mean, that you can't talk, I mean, a section at either of those places is Hinkley Big Rock High School. And, and when we got there, uh, it was like packing in sardines, okay? Uh, they, they wanted to make sure, and I looked around, and I was amazed. I, I played basketball there, and I never remember any of that amount of people coming to watch our pathetic play. But, but it was packed, every place. They had seats all around the baseline. Every inch of that gym had people in it. And what an incredible night it was. It was amazing to watch a full-scale Globetrotter game with all of their antics and all of that. And, and one thing I, I remember as I was sitting there watching, the place was, was rocking. It was full, and that makes it a whole lot easier to be rocking. But there was an excitement. There was a buzz that we were a part of something that was truly great. It was something that many people would never be able to experience. I mean, there's, there's really not many places that can say when you're as small as Hinkley that the Globetrotters came and played in your high school gym. And some of you may say, well, that's pretty small. You know, really, there's greater things in the world. We live in Hinkley. There's not a lot going on in Hinkley. We're going to take whatever we can get. But I remember sitting in the stands and, and thinking, what if a church had this kind of buzz about it? What if a church got this excited about God's work in our communities and in the world around us? What if we, with, with such expectation and such excitement, would say on a Sunday morning, the hottest ticket in town is to be at Village Bible Church because I know something historic is going to take place. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul lays out really what's going on, what I experienced in, in Hinkley Big Rock's gym, what was happening in the Thessalonian church. Lives were being changed. People were excited about what God was doing, and he was using this little fledgling church to change lives. And as a result of that, Paul sits down and writes this letter, this church that he had helped start, but had to leave because of persecution. Remember, Paul preaches for three Sabbath days, it says, in the synagogue in Thessalonica, we learned last week. But he has to leave because a mob of individuals come who hate Christianity and want him thrown out of the city. And so that's exactly what they do. They throw him out of the city and he's not allowed to come back. And he sits down and pens this letter maybe a year later and says, how I want to see you. Oh, how I've heard where I'm at now here in southern Greece. They're up in northern Greece. He's down near Athens and Corinth. He says, I'm hearing all that's going on and I'm very proud of you. What you're doing is changing lives. So how do we bottle that this morning? How do we as a church begin to bottle that kind of success? Now we can come up with all different ideas of what success can look like. We can come up with all kinds of programs, but you will notice there's not a single program in our text. There isn't five little steps to how you do this. Uh, there isn't, you know what, uh, make the service as exciting and fun. Make sure you got all kinds of pyrotechnics to make sure that people like it. Make sure you got this great rock band behind you so that uh, people are rocking and enjoying it. Just have fun. It doesn't say any of that. What it says is when we get our lives focused in and founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ, when we are transformed and allow that truth to renew our hearts and minds, God says he will take a group of people that are, that are so excited about that salvation that they've experienced, and he'll take them, and they'll change the world. I want you to notice this morning, there are four characteristics to what we as people need to have in our lives, and then in turn, what the church then can do. I want you to notice this morning that the first characteristic that Paul speaks about is he says, when he says, man, you guys are a wonderful church, you're doing great things, 
He wants to first of all help us understand that a church that is healthy and on the move for Christ is a church that is filled with people, first of all, who are established. Write that down this morning. There are people who are established. Now, I'm just, you know, not too long from being a first-time father. Just 13 years ago, I started on this journey of parenting with Amanda. And, and as parents, we recognized in the early years that our number one priority was to create an environment, an atmosphere, where our children would be founded and established with life principles. And they've changed as the years have gone on. Remember, uh, you start out with don't touch, right? Don't touch that. You'll get hurt. And then it's don't go there. You know that when you're playing out in the street, stay out of the street. Don't, don't go there. And then you start having conversations about things like peer pressure and how to make friends and all of that. We, as parents, start out very small in establishing our children, knowing that if we build a right foundation, then when they grow older, they'll be able to make wise and godly decisions. Paul starts out, and he begins the passage by reminding the church, as young as they were, who they were, where they had come from, and why they were the people that they were, so that when they continued to grow older, they would make healthy and wise decisions. Notice in our text, it says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now let's stop there for a moment. He starts by saying, here is who you are. He's not writing this letter to Tim. He's not writing this letter to Pastor Keith or or Pastor Steve, or any one of us in particular. Notice he says, to the church. So in that day, they would have gotten up on the Lord's Day, and someone would have said, we received a letter from the Apostle Paul. We're going to read it. We're going to meditate on it. We're going to try to understand what he's saying. We're going to make changes to the things that he, because he's an apostle, he's the authority in our lives. We're going to do what this letter says. And so the people would listen. And notice he begins and he says, hey, the reason why you're together, the reason why you are this church is because of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice this morning what a great reminder there is in that text to the church of the Thessalonians. Listen, this morning you and I don't gather together because we're the same people. Uh, We weigh different weights, we're different heights, we make different amounts of money. We enjoy different hobbies, we have different nationalities, we have different cultural backgrounds, Uh, we enjoy different sporting teams. I mean, there's a myriad of things that tell us we are different. So how are a group of different people going to come together and become one entity, this thing called the church? That word church in, in the Greek language of which Paul would have written it is literally the Greek word ekklesia. Literally, it's the assembly of called out ones. Well, what were we called out to? Notice the phrase says, we are called out to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reminder for us this morning that as we enter into this place and assemble as a church, though we are different in in so many ways, we gather under one banner, the banner of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That means everything that we do, the reason for us being here, the reason for the songs we sing, the messages we hear, the fellowship that we engage with one another is around not our differences, but based on our connection 
with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, why should he get all the praise? Why should we gather together? You know, today we'll have more than 600 people that will show up here today at this building, almost 1,000 people across our four campuses that are going to gather. 1,000 different people are going to gather. And then, of course, we can talk, as Pastor Keith prayed, of all the other churches that are gathering. Why would all these different people gather and give praise and adoration, sing songs? I mean, when other, do you, when other time in the, in the week do you get together and sing songs to a person you've never seen with your eyes, right? Why in the world would we do that? The answer is, is told to us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? Notice in verse, uh, end of verse 1, he has given grace to us and peace. The reason why we gather together, the reason why we are the church, the reason why the church exists is because we are giving worship and praise to the one who gives us grace, God's unmerited favor to us. And we know we need God's favor because we know, as the scripture tells us, that in our sinful state, we are enemies of God. We're at war with God. And God, because of his great and supreme love for us, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be extended grace and mercy in our time of need. That allows peace to come into our lives. So we are a group of people who have experienced a singular grace and a singular peace. And even though we're different, even though we come from different families and have different ideas and, and different plans in life, we can gather, we can sing and praise God and be filled with great encouragement because we are worshiping the same God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice what he goes on to say. He says that one of the reasons why we are established is because of the love of God. Notice in, in verse uh, 4. It says, For we know, brothers, that we have been loved by God and that he has chosen you. Let's stop there for a moment. Loved by God and that God has chosen you. What an incredible statement. A statement that I recognize this morning that there are deep theological disagreements with some of what is articulated. While we can all agree God loves us, that issue of chosen or, or the theological term of election and predestination can cause people to get all worked up and, and, and all that. But I want to tell you this morning, when we see loved by God and chosen by God, four things can come as a result. Number one, we are taught a very important truth that salvation, our salvation, begins with God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, in the second letter, this is what Paul tells us about this choosing. God chose you as the first fruits of salvation. It's God doing this choosing. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that this choosing takes place before the foundations of the world. Listen, before you and I were ever born, before Adam and Eve stepped onto the, uh, the ground in the Garden of Eden, God had in his mind and in his heart that he was going to extend and show his love to humanity, even though they were going to fall into sin. He loves. Second, it means that this love is something that is shown to all. Notice God loves all of humanity, even though all of humanity, because of sin, was heading to hell. And so you need to recognize if God doesn't intervene, then we're all heading to hell. There's no opportunity. Without Jesus Christ, we would be dead in our sin, we would be lost in our sin, and we'd be on our way to hell. But God, because of his rich mercy, 
because of his great love for us, all the love the Father has lavished on us, the Apostle John says. He allows us to become children of God. Listen to me this morning. Maybe you feel very unloved this morning. Maybe you, like I did in junior high, always felt unwanted. You remember the, the worst moments in, in my day as a junior high kid was the day when we would go out for, for the one recess we would have in the day, and we would step up across the wall. Remember those, that brick wall? All of you would stand up against it. And then the two cool kids, I don't know whoever gave them the job, but they had it since the first day of kindergarten, had the job of picking who was going to be the one, Right? You're on my team, okay, you're on my team. And I remember standing there, and, and a little heavier set than I would have liked to have been, maybe a little more awkward than, than most kids. And I would remember standing there, in essence, and watching person after person being picked. And I'd sit there and say, nobody wants me. Nobody wants me. I could go farther. I remember junior high dances, but I won't go there. Never mind. I'm just having a tough moment here. Um, but this feeling of being unwanted. But nobody's going to choose me. Here's what God is saying. God is announcing, I want you on my team. If that doesn't bring you a great sense of solace in your heart this morning, then you're missing out on the great truth. God is announcing through the gospel, I want you with me. I pick you. I choose you. I know you're messed up. I know you've got struggles. I know maybe you're not as coordinated as the other kids are. I know that maybe you think you're insignificant. But God is announcing to the world and to you today, I want you. Come be with me. Notice how does this happen? You say, well, I don't, I don't ever remember a time that we all lined up and, and God came down and started picking people. I don't remember that. The answer is that the gospel is the mechanism by which that takes place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we're standing against the wall, and what God said is, listen, y'all can be superstars today. You can all be on my team. And the reason why is this guy over here, Jesus Christ, he died on the cross. My only one and only son went to the cross to die for you so that you might experience grace and peace and that you might be a part of my team. If you have never bowed the knee to Jesus, if you've never accepted that message, then listen to me. You're not established. Oh, you may have a lot of money in your bank account. You may feel like everything's going great for you. But the most singularly important question that has to be answered in life is where am I at with Jesus? Have I accepted his invitation to have him in my life so that he can change me, so he can forgive me of my sins, cleanse me of my unrighteousness, so that I can walk in unity and in fellowship with him? Paul says, you guys have got it in Thessalonica. You guys have figured this out. God has revealed to you his grace and his mercy that allows peace and contentment in this world. We need to be an established people. It begins with God. God is the one who affirms this. Now notice, how do we get there? How do we get to being established? Notice, it begins by accepting the message. Notice in verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. 
And it says, you know what kind of men we have proved to be among you? We're going to talk about that next week. But you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So listen, I want to be very careful not to, I was listening yesterday to a, I know you guys don't probably do this, but, but I watch a lot of TV preachers. Saturday night, nothing on TV, watching TV preachers. And this very polished TV preacher in front of thousands of people in this multi-million dollar facility said, listen, if you come to Jesus today, you'll be healthy. If you come to Jesus, there will be riches ready for you. If you come to Jesus, you'll never be unhappy again. I don't know what he's reading, but he ain't reading the Bible. Because here's what we know. These people accepted Jesus as their Savior, and the Scripture says, with much affliction. Doesn't sound very healthy. Doesn't sound very wealthy. Doesn't sound very happy. But here's what it says. While they accepted Christ and received the gospel with much affliction, notice in the text what it says. They did so with great joy. You see, when we accept Christ, he doesn't take away our problems and our situations. What he does is he, he enters into those trials and tribulations and walks with them, walks with us in them. And so we can have joy and we can have peace because we've experienced God's grace. But notice what has to happen before we move on from this establishment. We have to understand that we have to turn from things. Verse 9 says, for they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so what we have to recognize is, is if we're going to accept Christ's invitation to be on his team, to be in his family, then that means that we have to say goodbye to the things that we have loved that are against the will and plans of God. We have to turn away from our sin. We can't have other, any other gods before us. Man-made God, handmade gods, whatever they may be, as noble as they may be, nothing can take first place anymore. Everything has to fall in line under Christ. Paul says, Thessalonians, you're doing this well. You are established. You know who you are in Christ. Keep up the good work. Notice point number two. These people were an exceptional people. They were exceptional. Notice, in what ways were these people exceptional? We know that this church was filled with everyday, ordinary, working people. Nowhere in the letter does anybody get any special recognition. There was nowhere in this church where we saw people, in essence, vying to be under the teaching of one pastor or another as in the church of Corinth. In Corinth, there were three different guys that were getting a lot of press in that church. But we don't have any of this. What we understand from, from church history is that uh, the, the Thessalonican church was a blue-collar, working-class church. And so what made them exceptional? Notice in the phrase, Paul says in verse 3, they were continually engaged in the service of Christ. How? Notice, their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul articulates is what one commentator says is, in this short verse, a brief definition of all true Christianity. Another commentator writes this. What does uh, uh, this mean? It is the whole of Christianity. If you get your faith your love and your hope down, you've got Christianity down. 
So this is a mouthful of what he's articulating. What do we need to know about it? First of all, each of these things come from God. You and I can't have faith, can't have real love, and can't have real hope apart from God. God says he gives these things to his people. He gives us the ability to have faith. He gives us the ability to have and show agape, a godlike love to others. He gives us hope for tomorrow. Not a wishy-washy hope. Not a, I hope that my favorite football team wins today in the playoffs. But a sense that it is going to happen because God has promised it. It comes from God. Number two, these things aren't really real unless they're put into action. Think about this. Faith is dead unless you exhibit it, right, into something. Love, let me tell you, what if I was to say I love my family and I do nothing to show them my love, but I tell you over and over, man, I really love my family. And when they need me, I say, hey, I'm too busy. Or when they need words of affirmation, I say, I'm mute at that point. I, I can't share. The only way we really know someone loves us is not by the words that they say, but by the actions and deeds that are exhibited. And what is hope? What is hope unless we put that hope to the test? We, we put hope into things knowing that God will see us through. You see, each of these things that made this church exceptional are things that they recognized came from God, so they didn't get big heads, oh, look at my faith, look at my love, look at my hope. No, they were gifts from God. Second, they were things that they had to put into action. So it wasn't they could sit around their little small groups and say, well, I think these things, but I don't have to do them. They were doing them. Third, notice that these things were what allowed them to have a stronger relationship with God and others. You see, we will never have a strong relationship with God unless the faith, love, and hope that we have is drawing us closer to him, that is binding us together with him. But likewise, that same faith, love, and hope that we extend to God out of gratitude for what he's given to us has to be shown to the world around us or we'll have relationships with nobody. And so what we have to recognize is, is this church had recognized they needed to do it, and it was something that needed to be done with great strain. Notice the phrase, labor of love. What he's literally talking about is, is where we get the idea that a woman is in labor. The strenuous activity of giving birth to a child. And so this phraseology he's using isn't that this is going to come across easy. That this is going to come simply to an individual. No, you're going to labor, you're going to strain to show this faith, to show this love, to live out this hope. It isn't going to be easy. But God says, if I give you it to use, then it's at your disposal. We need to recognize this morning that without faith, love, and hope within our lives or in this church, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. So we've got to exhibit these things. Notice number three, these people were enthusiastic people. So we see they were established. They knew who they were. They were exceptional. They were doing the right things. And now we see they were enthusiastic. These people had their lives changed for the better, and they were eager to make every other person aware of it. Now, isn't that how we are as people? I started out this message, and I told you about what event. Help me out. What event did I tell you about? 
Globetrotters. Did I say, you know what, what a waste of time? It was terrible. No, I gave you the impression that next time the Harlem Globetrotters are on, you should go see it. It's pretty exceptional. One of my sons said at the end of the day, this is one of the greatest days of my life, Dad. I was like, well, that's pretty cool. Just wait and get older because, no, you're right. This is probably the greatest day of your life. All right? And so when we say stuff like that, we spur others on to do what? To go and see it. To be a part of it. So we go to movies, and, and, and if we really like the movie, we sit around with friends or, or employees at work, and we say, you got to go see this. Or you eat at a great restaurant, and someone says, what would you do this weekend? Hey, listen, I went to the greatest restaurant in the world. It's so good. You have to go and be a part of it. These people weren't talking about a movie. They weren't talking about a sporting event. What they were talking about was their relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, they had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And what they went and did is because God had changed them in such a way, they were so enthusiastic to make sure everybody else knew what was going on. Notice verse 8. In verse 8, we are told that their testimony of their faith, hope, and love had sounded forth. It had sounded forth. Now, this is probably the most important part of my message, so listen. If you haven't listened to anything else, listen to this. This is important, okay? When it says sounded forth, the Greek word there is a big, long, multifaceted word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because if I would, someone would say you didn't pronounce it the right way. But if you were to look at it as it's transliterated into the English language, it would start out with the three le- or four letters E C H. Help me out, what does that spell? Echo. And what it's saying is, is your faith, your hope, your love has echoed. It has reverberated. Literally that word gives the word picture of a bell. Of a bell. And, and what he's saying is, is that this bell or this echo is what you are to be doing and how you are to be living as a follower of Christ in this world. So I have before you a bell, okay? Now I had to look up all the parts of the bell, and there's like 25 parts to the bell. I see three, okay? I don't know who's right. The bell experts or Tim Bidall. But here's what I know. You have a handle, you have the bell body, and you have, I didn't know this, I called it the doohickey, but it wasn't called that. It's called the clapper. How many knew that? How many knew this was called the clapper? Well, aren't you smarty pants, okay? All right, and what I found out was that you need to have, for a sound to go forth, you need to have the bell body and you have to have the clapper, right? Uh, If you have no clapper in the bell, you can shake that bell, you can do whatever you want with that bell, it's not going to make a sound, it's just a hunk of metal. But with the clapper, with that little uh, piece that's hanging inside the bell's body, you have the ability to make a sound. What Paul is saying is that their faith and their love and their hope, their enthusiasm of the life change that they've had in Jesus Christ, when it comes into contact with their God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, it will make a sound. Does that make sense? And so our job is to, listen, this is very important, our job 
is to make sure that our faith, hope, and love is continually in contact with our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we do that, a sound resonates. Now, I have one of the smallest bells I've ever seen. It's pretty small, right? But here's the amazing thing about a bell. When you ring it, can you guys hear that back there? Derek, can you hear that? Way back in the back row, I know you sit back there because you don't want to be pointed out by the teacher. I see you. You're sitting next to Ryan, probably passing notes. Can you? Can you two hear that? Yeah. It's a small bell. Here's the amazing thing. When we exhibit faith, hope, and love, and we do so with God walking in faith and hope and love with him, our faith, hope, and love is going to make a noise. And that noise is going to sound forth. Now, here's the amazing This is a pretty small bell. And yet, 400 people have now heard it, right? A little bell doesn't seem to be anything massive. When rung for the glory of God, resonates in the heart of people. Here's the amazing A couple things happen. You did not feel what I felt when I rang the bell, right? You heard the sound. What I felt is I felt the pressure or the, the tingling of the clapper hitting the body of the bell. When you as a Christian are bought into the work of Jesus Christ in your life, you will feel it. It's going to make you uh, sense and feel the work of God in your life. But what it's going to do for everyone else is they're going to hear a sound. Notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says this has sounded forth. From you in Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and Achaia, that's the province they lived in. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere that we need not say anything. This little church was ringing its bell so loudly that everybody could hear it. Which begs the fundamental question this morning for each of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Are you ringing your bell? Can anyone hear it? You see, we can walk around with our bell, and we can make sure that that clapper doesn't do anything. I can shake it, and you're not hearing anything, right? I can shake it and pretend to be shaking the bell, but nobody hears a thing. So the question this morning is, when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're in your neighborhood, are you shaking the bell like this, making sure nobody can hear it? Or are you doing this so that all around you can hear it. The Thessalonians sounded forth in their faith, and it changed lives. Here's the amazing thing. The Bible says that as the Spirit of God moves in the hearts and minds of people, when they hear that sound, they will know there's something different. And they'll be attracted to that. When the Spirit of God moves in the hearts of people, just as it had in the hearts of the Thessalonians, just as it has in our hearts, at some point, we hear that bell and we say, wait a minute, that bell sounds different than anything I've ever heard before. But sadly, so many of us have quieted the bell in our lives and our faith is not sounding forth. Notice the final thing this morning. They were established. They were exceptional. They were energetic. They wanted their message to get out. They were expectant. Let me close with this. The closing verse gives us a reason for our strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Verse 10 reminds us, look at the text, that as the, after they have turned from their idols, as they live and serve God, verse 10 says that they wait 
for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right there in black and white, the apostle Paul says, this Jesus who walked on the earth, remember, some 17, 18 years prior to this letter being written, this Jesus whom he says, I met on the road to Damascus as I was going to thwart and destroy Christianity. I met this Jesus. I saw him face to face, and it brought me to my knees. This Jesus who went to the cross, who was buried in a grave, where news reports and all kinds of people said he rose from the dead. This Jesus, who the disciples said ascended to heaven, this Jesus promises to come back. In fact, the second to the last verse of the Bible, Jesus is quoted, yes, I am coming back soon. And so Paul says that what we as people must do in the here and now is that we need to recognize Jesus is coming back. But how do we live with that anticipation. What, a, what an incredible promise. The old hymn said it this way. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all sing, see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. So Jesus is coming. He's going to take us to be with him. And so we're going to either meet Jesus in two ways. One of two ways. We're going to die and we'll be present with the Lord as the Apostle Paul says. Or Jesus will meet us here on earth in the air and we will be caught up with him. Those are the two ways that we're going to meet Jesus. And, and in that moment, we are going to praise and proclaim and, 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 and just announce to all around what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. But what about the here and now? In a world of much affliction, in a world of much struggle, what do we do? What about the Thessalonians? They had troubles. They had trials. How would them having this hope allow them to live their life any different? I'm going to close with one final illustration. Listen to me. I, I don't mean to make any jokes about it. Okay? So my intention is no jokes. So please don't laugh because it's not my intention. But here I want to liken this and hopefully it will help you to maybe live a little different as a follower of Christ this week. Imagine with me for a moment that we're about to close this service. And God comes, and he shows up right here behind the pulpit. Not me, by the way, no joke, okay? God is here. And God, with his myriad of angels, announces to us, listen, I have a promise for you. Here is my promise. And remember, the one who gives this promise is faithful and true. Write this down. Make sure you never forget it. In 2016, the Cubs are going to win the World Series, okay? That's what he says. And we all sit there and say, wow, that's great. There's a sense of excitement. But then the season starts. And the Cubs lose their first 10 games. They look terrible on the field. And then maybe they pull it together for a little bit. And we're in the dog days of summer, July and August. They're, they're in third or fourth place. And all the expectations of them being this great team, they've fallen apart. Injuries are happening. There's all kinds of disunity in the clubhouse. There's questions on whether their managers got it figured out, whether the young kids can truly, really play. And we're asking all these questions. And you've told people, I love the Cubs. They're going to win the World Series. I have a hope in it. I'm certain of it. And you go to work and they say, what a loser. Why would you be a part of this team? This team is letting your heart down. It's, it's, it's not living up to expectations. And, and you have a choice. 
to either believe the promises of God or begin to let your faith in your heart be reduced down to saying maybe he isn't telling the truth. Listen to me. If God was here to say that the Cubs were going to win the World Series, then we would believe it, right? And we'd be okay if they lost their first 10 games, and we'd say it's a long season. We would be okay if everything was falling apart. We'd say they're going to pull it together. The one who told me they were going to win is utterly faithful to see it come to fruition. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it even though at times it seems as if the world is telling me I'm a fool for doing so. This is our struggle with believing that Jesus is going to come back. People mock it. People say it's never going to happen. People say you're putting your hope and your trust in, on a team, if you will, that's never going to win. But I want to remind you, the one who articulates this is faithful and true. And Jesus tells us, in his own words, the prophets told us in their words, the apostles told us in their words, all of the scriptures tell us this truth, Jesus is coming back. And we don't know if it's today, we don't know if it's tomorrow, we don't know if it's a hundred years from now, we don't know. But what we know is that we can have confidence because the one who tells us it is true. Notice he says, right before he says verse 10, I think it's a bit, I don't want to say ironic, there's nothing ironic with God, that they left their idols to serve the living and, help me out, true God. This God who now we are called to wait for his son from heaven. God has given us a promise. Now, will we live in light of it? Now, how does that add up for us as, as individuals? Will we live in that truth, with that truth in our mind? Or we allow the things of this world, the people of this world, to say, you don't know what you're talking about. What a fool for believing these things. The Thessalonian church knew who they believed in. They were established. They know who loved them. They were a church that, that was uh, not only uh, established, but they were exceptional. They were busy striving and serving God. They were energetic. They were so changed by what God had done in their life that they wanted everyone to know about it in such a way that they literally would ring their bells so that all could hear it. And they're this expectant group that believes as Christ said, Yes, I'm coming back soon. We cannot be this kind of church without these kinds of people. And my hope and prayer is, as we've heard from God's word this morning, that we would take it to heart and that we would apply these truths, asking, am I established? Am I exceptional, energetic, and expectant? I believe our best years are ahead of us as a church because I believe the heart of this church desires for these things to be true. But we've got to ask for God's strength. We've got to ask for the Spirit's uh, outpouring of his gifts and his, and his uh, blessing in our lives. And we need to be willing to turn away from the idols in verse 9 that we are called to turn away from. But it's then and only then we'll be a church ready to make a name for God. And I'll tell you, that's the best place for a church to be. Let's pray. Father God, as we close our time today, we are struck by the truths of your message. And Lord, I pray that we would do some evaluating in our own lives. 
For some maybe here this morning, they've never bowed the knee to Jesus, never recognized or heard that God loves them and that he sent his son Christ to die for them. Lord, today I pray that those who have heard that gospel would give their lives to Christ. Lord, if they don't know what that means, if they need more explanation, Lord, I pray they would stop and talk with someone today before they would leave, that today they could experience what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, for those who have been following Christ, maybe for many years, I pray that we, like the Thessalonians, would sound forth because of the work you've done in our lives with with the service and message you've given us. And we would do so with great confidence, knowing that we are on the winning team. And we know that our God and our creator and our king has told us the war is already won. We are the victors. Lord, I pray that we would walk into our workplaces tomorrow, into our schools and into our neighborhoods with a humble confidence that all that you say in your word is true and that we can have confidence in it. So Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit that we would turn from the things that keep us from this type of living so that we might bring you glory and honor because it is you, you are the one we serve, you are the one we praise, you are the one that we give all the honor and glory to. So use us, make us, mold us, change us so that we might be the servants you've called us to be. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place. Lord, I pray you. A simple prayer, keep us warm, keep us safe as we travel. Lord, now give us time as we fellowship with one another to know our connection that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, changed by the same grace and given the same peace through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. To you be the glory in your house this morning. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. Go and fellowship with one another. You are dismissed. Amen.